That's my anointed friend, Charlie. Keeps getting better. Wonderful worship and Brian, wonderful prayer. Brian is an older version of myself in a way. <laughs> We're interweaving 2 Corinthians into Hebrews, and we have what I consider to be in 2 Corinthians 5:14 to 21, an apocalypse for right now. An apocalypse for right now. The passage in Hebrews that correlates with this passage is the whole book of Hebrews, the whole homily, the entirety of the message of the book of Hebrews. At the beginning of the year, I started off with 10 affirmations of Tetelestai Phalanx. And this is the seventh. Again, the love of Christ controls us. And that's the seventh of the affirmations and in many ways the most important, the love of Christ controls us. And that's what begins this apocalypse, this manifestation of Christ for our time in 2 Corinthians 5.14 to 21. So we'll start with 2 Corinthians 5.14. In this passage, there's going to be the gathering up of several important themes. And this passage will be designed to equip us, for we are the afflicted but well-equipped ambassadors of Christ in our time, to equip us as a new covenant community headed on toward the beatific vision, the city that Abraham looked for, the city that we all look for, and as such, we are here in Christ's stead, pleading with the world, be reconciled to God, because God has reconciled you in Christ. On Wednesday's message, and Wednesday was a message in which we dealt with the AD 70 trajectory, and then I dealt with the transformation of the imagination. And this is something that happens through what R.M. Duran called the psychic conversion. And we had a, a moment of silence to forgive R.M. Duran because he was an avid Milwaukee Brewers fan. So we, now that we've forgiven him and confirmed our love, because forgiveness is the confirmation of love, we went on to some of his most important discoveries. But the transformation of the imagination allows us to see the aesthetic value of the Word of God and to see the metaphorical, the parabolic, the artistic meaning of the great artisan, our Lord. And to overcome the great problem of trying to interpret metaphorical and poetic passages as literal passages, which has brought forth an eschatology that's abysmal and hopeless. And so we have trusted God for the transformation of our imagination. This coming Wednesday, there will be the transformation of our expectation. Once I was attuned to an eschatology that assumed the destruction of the universe and my imagination was stunted in my interpretation of passages like Matthew 24 and other passages that were apocalyptic. 
Now there has been a transformation of my expectation. I'm expecting the restoration of all things, the glorious liberation of creation by the apocalypse of the sons of God. And so the transformation of my expectation has occurred. And I know it's happened for many of you also. In between, we're dealing with the transformation of our valuation. The valuation means how we value things, how we value humanity. Charlie Song just sang about how the Lord's eye is upon the sparrow. Jesus said, how much more is his eye upon you because you are worth many sparrows? And that was a poetic understatement, of course. So the transformation of our valuation is when the love of Christ arrests us and then holds us in its grip. It's a burning love that is the fiercest kind of fire. Many waters cannot quench it. Many waters cannot extinguish it. Once the love of Christ gets a hold of you, it burns, and all of life pours water on it. And every time we are confronted by opposition or slander or people who hate and people that malign, water is thrown on the fire, but nothing can quench it. Many waters cannot quench this love. It's a fervent kind of love. It's a love that Paul had so much so that in 2 Corinthians 5.13, he answered an accusation against him. They said Paul was crazy. And it's amazing how many opinions come toward a messenger of the word of God, how many gossipy things happen. And Paul answers a few of them, and he does some of it with a little bit of humor. He said, I'm not crazy. The love of Christ has gotten a hold of me. That's what happened to me. The love of Christ controls me, grips me. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, I saw this this morning and it quite gripped me because Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with and oh, how I am driven until it's accomplished. In John 19.30, he said, it's accomplished. The word that he used in Luke 12.50 for being driven was the word syneco, S-Y-N-E-C-H-O, and it means to be driven, to have a driving force, an impelling force in one. And the baptism he was to undergo was all the condemnation against sin would fall on him. All of ours would fall on him. He would be smothered in it, baptized in it, in something unspeakable, the death of the cross. Oh, how I'm driven, he said, until it's accomplished. And the word is teleo there, which is the root word for tetelestai. When he had been baptized with that baptism into a death that is unimaginable, as a wage of sin, he said, it is finished. So we're gathering up several themes here in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, this apocalypse for right now. And we are gathering up the theme of the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus. Latin for that is extra nos, outside of ourselves. This love of Christ draws us 
outside of ourself. In Christo, extra nos, in Christo. Over and against the life we once lived, which isn't life at all, the curvature in ad se, as the Latin would say it, the curvature into ourselves. The whole point of a higher integration of human living is the orientation goes out from ourselves and self-absorption into orientation to Jesus Christ. We live to him who is raised from the dead. We'll come up with that in 2 Corinthians 5.15. The higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus occurs by the hegemonic spirit, as he's called in Psalm 51.12 who is the spirit of grace. This occurs in the time in between the two alterations, the great alteration of the human situation that happened in the cross in 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 5.19, and the great alteration of the human and the universal condition that is about to occur in the parousia. In between, the spirit of glory rests upon us, as 1 Peter 4.14 says. In the time in between, we live to him who died and rose again, who died to sin once and now lives to God, Romans 6.10. He who was crucified in weakness and yet lives and ministers now by the power of God. And so does the new covenant community, for we were crucified with him and raised with him, and we too live by the power of God the omnipotent benevolence of our creator and redeemer. The new covenant community, in order for it to be effective as ambassadors, as the new covenant apostolate on the level of our time, must be gripped by the love of Christ. Otherwise, there is no effective ambassadorship. The transformation of our valuation is something that comes up in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 17. From now on, Paul said, I don't know anyone after the flesh. What had happened was a transformation of his valuation. He was like the man who, in the first touch from Jesus, saw all men as trees walking. But in the second touch, he sees all men clearly. To see all men clearly is to see all humanity as Jesus does, as living to God. Everything, the alteration of the human and cosmic situation, the transformation of the individual through awakening her or him to faith, including the transformation of the perception, everything, the commission of the new covenant community with the word of reconciliation, the reconciliation of the world itself leading to the inevitable universal restoration and gathering up of all things universally in Christ. All of this is from God. All of this is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes because faith perceives that all of this is from God who is love. Faith discerns and grasps the totality of God's love and of Christ's love. Its infinite dimensions, its height, its depth, its breadth and width. The spirit of faith pours power into the inner man 
so that Christ may reside at home in our hearts by faith. A faith that grasps, along with all saints, the love of Christ, which is only grasped and comprehended by the absolutely supernatural gift of faith. Otherwise, Christ's love is unknown and unconsidered as it ought to be. Faith is the perceptiveness granted to us as a supernatural gift from God by which we perceive the otherwise unseen things of the human and creation-wide change of situation. And we see the hoped-for reality of the coming universal change of condition. By faith, we understand the divine cosmology, that the world was created, the universe was created by the word of God. By faith, we wait for the realization of the promises of a true eschatology. A psychic conversion enables us to receive a transformation of our imagination. The gift of faith enables us to receive a transformation of our expectation, for faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The gift of faith enables us to receive a transformation of our expectation. And when the love of Christ controls us, we receive a transformation of our perception, a radically new and different valuation of people, of individuals, of all of humanity. We begin to see all people as Jesus sees them. We not only see Jesus, we see as Jesus sees in love. The higher integration of human living is participation with Christ by the hegemonic spirit. It's a being in love. We may have once seen a man like the rich young ruler in Mark 10:17 and following, as he's described traditionally, and we may have despised him for being self-sufficient and arrogant. Jesus beheld him, however, and loved him. Jesus looked him up and down and looked through him and into his deepest soul, and it said he felt love for him, affection, but love, agape love, Mark 10, 21. We may have seen people as trees walking. We may have valued human beings as just that, just equal with or as radical environmentalists see people as less than trees. That's not God's valuation. Despite all the failures and flaws and sinfulness of man, God values human beings above every other part of creation, including the angels. He did not take upon himself the nature of angels, but the nature of humanity to help the seed of Abraham, which is all of humanity. He sees all men, all human beings, just as the living God sees them, his father, and he sees all as living to God and values all of humanity and each individual infinitely. We may throw water on the fire of his love, 
but all it does is make it burn brighter. Like the Heavenly Father, Jesus sees each human being as worth more than the birds of the sky. Matthew 6.26. And that's a poetic understatement. When Jesus said, you're worth more than many birds, he was being understating it. God values human beings above all else in creation. The eternal word, himself, God, became flesh. Yes, he became flesh to redeem all flesh. But in becoming flesh, he assumed the nature of a human being, not of a bird or a dog or a reptile. Of all the animals in the animal kingdom, though, he became most like the lamb though he was also the lion of the tribe of Judah. The man Christ Jesus, one like a son of man, sees all people through the lens of limitless love. Jesus loved this man in Mark 10, valued this man and all people, however unattractive or uncool they are to us, to the point where he gave himself for us all, endured the judgment due us all, became sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Limitless love unimaginable grace, indiscriminate mercy, mercy upon all. When this love, the love of Christ, arrests and then holds us, this love transforms our values and causes a change in our valuation, a radical alteration of how we evaluate and how we value individuals and all people, and how we view and contemplate all of creation, too. The hope that faith hopes for, though delayed, is not discouraged. What we hope for is the glory of God in Romans 5, too, and our glorification in it, our transfiguration in it, the beatific vision, which is vertical finality, our direction toward that. And though that hope is delayed, It's not discouraged because, as Paul said in Romans 5.5, in the meantime, there is, along with hope and faith, the love of God being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace, who was given to us to be with us and in us forever. In this meantime... There is not only faith and hope, there is love, namely the love of Christ that controls us. This love is the primary driver of the New Covenant community as they go about their living and their vocation, their task, and their ministry, their spiritual combat in the arena of contention that is the clash of the eons. And this is where the exegesis 
of our apocalypse begins. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. Hey, agape tu Christu sun eke. That word sun eke, like Jesus said it. Oh, how I am driven, impelled, compelled, controlled, meaning by love, until this baptism is accomplished, until I say it's finished. This love of Christ, if we were to get a little bit technical, it's an objective, subjective genitive. This is the point where my entire ministry took a turn, a radical turn, and a turn, I think, for the better, for the more universal, for the more Christ-honoring and Christ-glorifying, because that word, hey, agape to Christu, the love of Christ, when you look at the, and I do all the time, the syntactical and grammatical construction of this, it's a genitive, and it's an both an objective and a subjective genitive. It defies all the other categories of genitive. And an objective genitive would simply mean that this is the love of Christ, meaning our love for Christ. The subjective genitive would be Christ's love for us. Now, the scales tip very strongly toward that subjective genitive, the love of Christ for us, for God, for all of humanity, for his enemies as well as his friends and disciples and brethren. And so the scales tip towards subjective, but it also includes objective. The love of Christ for us actually works into a return love for him. A, you can call it reciprocal, but it's not quite reciprocal because we can't duplicate that love. But we can return that love to him. And all of that is part of the same process, God, his love for us and our love for him. It's what is the same process. It's been called a simultaneous genitive. It's happening at the same time. His love for us, our return love for him, it's happening at the same time. The reason this is when my whole valuation changed, my whole expectation changed to a universal restoration is because I saw that when the love of God was poured out in our hearts, and I didn't see this exegetically, it happened to me. The love of Christ poured out in our hearts. The love of God poured out in our hearts is a process whereby all of God's love is poured out in us, and our love for him, return love for him, is part of the same gift. It isn't something we work up. It isn't something we do under a command of law under a command written in flat stones somewhere. It's a command of the heart. It's a command written upon our heart. And it's fulfilled by the spirit that's placed in us as the new covenant community. And so this is a simultaneous genitive. It's also called a comprehensive genitive. We love because he loved us first. In other words, 1 John 4.19, put it that way. We love God. We love ourselves, we love our neighbor, we love the brethren, we love our enemies, we love all of humankind, every human being, only because he, God, loved us first. We love with God's gift of God's own love. God's gift to us is the gift 
of God himself. It's the gift of God's own love in us. We love with God's gift of God's own love in us, or we don't love anyone at all. Without this gift at work in us, we loathe ourselves, hate or envy or compete with our neighbors, judge the brethren or compare ourselves with one another and measure ourselves by one another, which Paul says is certainly not wise. We hate our enemies and we wish them to die and go to hell sometimes. (laughs) You might even tell them that. We want certain people to rot or burn in hell. We think they deserve it and that we are much better or much better off than they because we believed or we repented or we said a sinner's prayer or we gave our lives to the Lord, we think. We render judgments on people. We trash them, we troll them, we dox and destroy them. We crucify them on our social media posts while we glamorize ourselves and virtue signal out of our own desperate insecurity, like the Pharisees who sound a trumpet before they put a few coins in the poor box so everybody sees them, fearing that we will not be held in high esteem and appreciation by everyone. The gift of God's own love blows all that away, blows it away. And what a freedom it is to be free from all that. There's no fear in love. None. No fear in love. Nor is there any fear in those who are perfected in that love. There's no fear of missing out. That's such a popular thing now that they actually call it FOMO. Fear of missing out. They're having a party and I'm not there. What if they're having a party and I'm not there? Fear of missing out. That's all blown away. There's no fear of being left alone. No fear of death or of hell or of God forsaking us. No fear of being loved or valued less than someone else because God the Father happens to love you equally with his son, Jesus Christ. Equally. Never less. This love of Christ controls us. This love is also Christ's own love for all of humanity. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 which is also God's love for the world. When the love of Christ controls us, his love for all of humanity, for all human beings without exception, controls us, grips us. When love is perfected or completed in us as an apostolic attribute, and that's the thing that I want to hit really strongly here, this love is not just a Christian attribute, it's an apostolic attribute. It's an apostolic driver. It drives the ambassadors of Christ. It drives an effective community with a message of reconciliation. Without it, there's only a pretend evangelism. Without it, there's a mechanical evangelism. 
Without it, there's a whole lot of things that you got to do that's laid upon you. God loves you. He went to the cross. He died. He shed his blood for you. Now you tell God you're going to follow him forever. You tell him you're going to be sorry for your sins. Admit that you're a sinner. Da 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 da. All of it, that's crap. That's not the gospel. That's dung. I count it as dung. And I counted it as dung because I used to preach it. And when I came to know this love of Christ, I counted as dung all the stuff that I thought was valuable because I had an estimation of myself that was pretty high. I'm going to tell you what the gospel is as we wind this message down. Now, this love of Christ, when it grips us, it becomes an apostolic attribute. Those who are gripped by it become an apostolate, a cadre of apostolic Christians, not the apostles like the 12. We're never going to call ourselves the church of the apostles or the apostolic church. When I say apostolic, I mean sent into this world as ambassadors, effective ambassadors of Christ. As the Father sent me, so I send you. This love of Christ gripping us above all other grips and grasps on our life is an apostolic attribute, not just a Christian trait. As we're going to learn, it's aroused. This love is first aroused in us when we come to a conviction that when one died for all, all died. In other words, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, when it dawns on you, that love starts to grip you. And you're held in that grip by the hegemonic spirit, the Holy Spirit, who pours out the love of God and keeps pouring it out in our hearts. It's an apostolic attribute. We love not only Christ in return and God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but we love the world of humanity and see the whole world as reconciled to God. That's a change. That's quite an alteration in our evaluation. Consequently, we take that message to the world and urge everyone to acknowledge that reality that reality that is Jesus Christ for them, for all, for us all. This love is not just aroused in us as a reflective response to the knowledge of the universally saving significance of Jesus and the universal impact of his cross. It is that. Don't get me wrong. Paul goes on to say it, and we'll get that in subsequent messages. It's also powerfully poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He's called the hegemonic spirit because he governs the heart and strengthens us in Psalm 51.12. He's called the Lord the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3.16-18 because he is that hegemonic, governing spirit, leading spirit. In connection with the blood of the new covenant, he is specifically called the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29. 
He's called the Spirit of Grace because he is the Spirit according to the promise of the New Covenant. God's own Spirit whom he places within the New Covenant community, causing them to walk in his ordinances, which is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus extended that neighbor out to be all people, including enemies. That's what love does. The spirit of grace is the driver of a Christocentric ethic, a new kind of ethics, an ethics of love. The spirit of grace is the subject of the messianic prophecy of Zechariah 4, 6, where it says, not by strength, human strength, or by might, human might, military might, or any other kind of human might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of the armies. And he, Zerubbabel, says Zechariah, the king who was commanded to build the temple in the restored Israel, and he will put the capstone in place as everyone shouts, grace, grace. It'd be a good name for a church, Grace, Grace Church. Not by strength, nor by might, but by my spirit and grace, grace. And in Zechariah 12, 10a, then I will pour out the spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look to me whom they have pierced. Grace on those who have pierced me. Says the Lord. Paul no doubt presupposes the Spirit's part in this comprehensive love of Christ. He speaks of the Holy Spirit and sincere love, unaffected love, unfeigned, unfaked. Someone who has this kind of love may never say the words, I love you. They may never say those words ever in their life, say, I love you. They may never say that. This love, anupakritos, non-hypocritical love, said in one breath by Paul when he described his ministry in 2 Corinthians 6.6, 6, by the Holy Spirit, he said, and sincere love. The hallmarks of his ministry. A ministry that resulted from not receiving the grace of God in vain in 2 Corinthians 6.1. In his multi-volume treatise on agape in the New Testament, Ceslas Speak, a French theologian, makes a true observation about Paul when he said simply this, agape is the virtue which characterized Paul as an apostle. What characterizes Paul as an apostle? Agape. It's a love, classical Greeks considered that love to be two things, appreciation and esteem. It's an appreciation and an esteem for someone. Of course, it goes beyond that in self-sacrificing in the Christian sense. 
And I think he was really on to something, and the fire started in my soul at that point, because agape is an apostolic virtue. It's not just a Christian virtue. It's an apostolic virtue. It's the primary virtue of an apostolate atlat, that is, the apostolate, the effective ministers of reconciliation on the level of our time in the 21st century. It's the virtue of Christian maturity. It's a steady virtue of Christian maturity. It's a virtue that does not need to be signaled. You go by homes today and you read this virtue signal sign in the front. Hate has no home here, which is an advertisement that hate pretty much has a home there. I think there's more love in Clint Eastwood saying, get off my lawn. But anyways. It's the true. It doesn't have to be signaled. In fact, if it's signaled, it might not even be real. It might not even be a virtue. It might not even be the sincere virtue. I'm not saying you can't say, I love you. Sometimes we do. Probably we often do. But this virtue is a virtue that need not be signals, be signaled because it is simply lived. It is God in us willing and doing, God in us loving, willing the good for our neighbor, the world, all people. Willing the good. If someone hates you, can you still will the good for them? That's love. If someone maligns and slanders you, can you will the good for them? Yeah, that's love. If someone hates God and hates you, can you will the good for them? Yes, you would will their conversion, wouldn't you? You would will them to be wakened like Paul was to faith. Pam and I were both very built up last night as we watched that C.S. Lewis movie called The Most Reluctant Condor. What a wonderful depiction that was. It was a great movie. It's a, I highly recommend it. It's a movie I recommend. In fact, that same actor will be coming to the Byam Theater in April, I think, 22nd, to do this live. He was a wonderful, he's a Christian actor. I can't think of his name right now. But the whole story of C.S. Lewis, what a reluctant convert. Those are the best kind. He was an absolute avid atheist. He, had, he was a roommate with J.R.R. Tolkien and other guys, and they always had dialectic. He had a parent. His mother died of cancer after suffering for a long time, and he and his brother saw that suffering. His father kind of went off the rails a little bit, and he ended up living with an old tutor for a couple of years, and learned, that tutor engaged him in dialectic and philosophy and rhetoric Every day and every night, he studied until one in the afternoon and had to deal with his teacher, who was a wonderful teacher. But it showed how when God initiated to him, it was in a series of awakenings. And one of these times, he said, I, I suddenly became aware of this being who said to me, I am. And so he became a theist, but he said, I'm still not a Christian. 
And then an atheist told him, you know, of all the things in the world, there's this, these gospels are the most unique literature in the world. And, and this absolute avowed atheist that he admired said to him, you know, to the point where something happened, really happened in history. What the gospels said really happened. An atheist said that. That guy's not an atheist anymore. And then he tells, but he tells the story, he's very engaging, he takes you to a tavern, takes you to a place, and he's talking to you, but he's, it's recounted at the same time. It's a brilliant movie, it's really good, I recommend it. But this is, it kind of reminded me what happened until he got to the point where he was awakened and the love of Christ really did begin to control him. And he had that apostolic virtue, and he became part of the ap- ap- apostolate atlat of our time, as you know as most of you know who have read anything by him. This is a most important observation, that it's an apostolic virtue. As we cannot downplay the part of the spirit of grace in love, neither can we downplay the crucial importance of the word of grace. The word of God is essential. It's how God keeps us in his grip as he is now. It's the word of grace in Acts 20.32, in the development of love and its completion. The love of God is perfected in what kind of person, John said, in him or he, in, in her or him who keeps his word, who retains the word, 1 John 2.5. In those who give precedence to the message that one died for all, and when he did, all died. That God was in Christ reconciling the world of human beings to himself, not imputing their sins to them, not imputing their sins to them. That he who knew no sin became sin, that we, the world, in the context, we, the world, would be made the righteousness of God in and by him. We guard with our lives this word, this message that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. There is no condemnation in Christ, and now all are in Christ. You say, you're crazy. No, I'm not. I'm driven by the love of Christ. I've seen that. If any man is in Christ, there's a new creation, and every man is in Christ, just like every man, every person was in Adam. In Adam, there's nothing but condemnation. In Christ, there is no condemnation. And all are in Adam, were once, and there was condemnation. Now, all are in Christ, and there is no condemnation. It isn't, there's no condemnation only to those who are in Christ. That's true. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ, and everyone's in Christ. I see all men clearly now. You say, you're nuts. That's crazy. That's a, that's a terrible doctrine, and I've even heard of that recently. That's a, what, an, what a terrible doctrine to preach. Universalism, they say. He's crazy. Well, in my case, that may be true, but... That's not what is driving me when I say this message. I've seen all men living to him. 
My eyes see all people clearly. And we're going to see that. Not today. Don't worry. The love of Christ controls us because we've come to judge this. We've come to this determination that when one died for all, all died. All died to Adam. All died to condemnation. And when all died in Christ, all died to sin. All died away from sin as he did in Romans 6.10. And when he came forth from the grave, so did all in him. Not everybody knows that yet. Not everyone's been awakened to that. That's why the Bible says, awake, you sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. This, this truth will shine on you when you wake up. Going to an evangelistic crusade and marching forward in front of your friends and making a commitment, that didn't make you see this. Only God can do that. Only God can awaken you to that. Only Christ can awaken you. And when he does, he shines upon you with this knowledge. The knowledge of the glory of God that shines in his face. You can't see the face of Jesus Christ without seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the salvation that he has wrought for all mankind. You cannot see the face of Jesus Christ without seeing in his face the light of indiscriminate, unimaginable, universal mercy. You can't. Unimaginable kind of love. There is no condemnation in Christ, and now all are in Christ. There was only condemnation in the first man, Adam, who represented all of humanity. There is no condemnation in Christ who represents and includes in himself all of humanity. The only condemnation left in the world, and John said this in 3.18, the only condemnation or the judgment left in the world is the self-condemnation of the unpurged conscience. If our own heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart in 1 John 3.20. He knows all things. We condemn ourselves because we don't know what I'm telling you here. And so John said, this is the condemnation that they don't believe in the only begotten Son of God, meaning they don't believe that in the only begotten Son of God, all condemnation was done away with. The only condemnation left in the world in, um, among human beings is self-condemnation of the ignorant, of the unpurged conscience, which... Hebrews fixes, and we'll see that. We sanctify this word of reconciliation in our hearts. As we sanctify Christ as Lord in our heart's most precious part. While we always are ready, we stand ready. With answer, to answer to anyone who asks us about our hope, our confidence, and why aren't you worried? Our feet are shod or prepared with the shoes of the gospel of peace, which is the very good news of the reconciliation of all things by the blood of the Son of God's love. We make our appeal even when reviled, Paul said. Even when hated, even when mocked and maligned. 
We beg you, acknowledge your reconciliation with God is how we appeal. We don't ask you to believe. We go to the world and we say, we don't ask you to believe in order to be reconciled. We say, God has reconciled you to himself. He does not charge your sins to you. He, the judge of all, received the judgment for all. We don't say believe and you'll be reconciled. We say God has reconciled you to himself. Believe it. Or as my dad used to say it, you better believe it. You see, we're saved by grace through the faithfulness of Jesus, through the obedience, his obedience, to the extent of an unspeakable death as judgment, the death of the cross. When were we saved? Well, I went forward in a meeting with Billy Graham. That's when I was, no, I'm going to tell you when you were saved, according to the Bible. You believe the Bible, you respect the Bible. When the philanthropy of God appeared. When did the philanthropy of God appear? In Jesus Christ and him crucified. I know nothing else. God so loved the world of humanity. That's called philanthropy. It's, it's a word that's actually found in Titus 3, 4. When the philanthropy of God appeared, 3, 4 of Titus, 3, 5 says he saved us. When did he save us? When the philanthropy of God appeared. When did the philanthropy of God appear? When one died for all and all died at the cross. When were you saved? Then. Through faith, not yours, because you weren't even there. Well, you were. You were there when they crucified my Lord because you were in him. But you weren't there physically. You weren't there like the centurion who said, truly, this is the Son of God. You're right. So did all the other Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross and mocked him. They all saw this is the Son of God. I wasn't there physically. So it couldn't have been my faith that saved me by grace and through faith, the faithfulness not mine but his. When was I saved? When his faithfulness was finished, when his baptism was completed, when he said it is finished, I was saved, you were saved. When the philanthropy of God made its appearance in Christ and him crucified, he saved you according to his mercy, and not by righteous works which you have done or I have done, we weren't even there. We weren't even yet. God shows mercy to all. When? Then is when he showed mercy to all. Saving mercy to all. When were you saved? Oh, about 1970-some years ago. You're crazy. No, the love of Christ controls me, that's all. Are you crazy? No, the love of Christ controls me. <laughs> we're saved 
And by I, when I say we're saved, I mean the world. We are the world. We are the saved. That song, by the way, talk about a virtue signal. That was a collective virtue signal inducing, it's a better emetic than any other vomit-inducing medicine. It was then that we were saved according to God's mercy, mercy that he's shown to all in the crucified, risen, exalted, and enthroned Christ. The love that moved him, drove him. It was the driving force of the sent one, the sent son of God. That same driving force is the force that drives us. I'm driven now. Why can't I quit? Because I'm driven till it's finished. When will it be finished? When my exhale comes where my soul leaves my body. That's when it's done. When will the combat be over and you'll be able to rest? When we're dead. When we're dead. You think you're going to get a vacation and a retirement from this? People are finding out in my generation, looking forward all your life to retirement, finding out you can't really retire. There's problems with your children and your grandchildren and problems with your parents who live longer now than anyone has ever lived. And sometimes artificially. Don't artificially keep my life going. I'm going to be ready naturally. And so the finances might not be there for a person. We, we look forward to this little section of our life where we think, ah, we're going to rest. And just like the rich man, we're going to lay up everything in our barns and eat and drink and take our ease. You fool. You fool, it says in the scriptures. Not going to happen. Oh, you may retire and you may have a comfortable retirement and you may have a vacation and you may... And even if you sit in a nice Adirondack chair on the beach in Florida, you've got something to look forward to. A mass of sargassic seaweed, twice the width of the United States, coming on the beach and then stinking and rotting. Along with that, a little bit of red tide and thousands of smelly dead fish. Yay, retirement. <laughs> Better go to the mountains. where there's even something worse than stinking fish, environmentalists <laughs> that think sparrows are more important than human beings and crocodiles far more valuable. than See that crocodile eating that person? <laughs> it's lunch for them. The crocodile is much more important than people. The bird is much more important than people. This is more important than people. The animal kingdom more important. Not to Jesus Christ. Sorry. You are worth many birds. Now, I'll close with this. When Hebrews 13.1 says, let brotherly love continue, we have to consider that Jesus called all human beings his brothers, his siblings, his brothers and sisters. Because everyone whom he chose to redeem are made of blood and flesh, so he decide, So who's redeemed? If you're made of blood and flesh, you're redeemed. To redeem his brothers and sisters, he partook of the same blood and flesh, human blood and flesh. 
so that he could destroy the one who had power over us with the fear of death. So when Hebrews 13.1 says, let brotherly love continue, we have to consider Jesus called all human beings his brothers or siblings because he called us all to glory and he brings us all ultimately to glory. He calls all those who partake in blood and flesh his brothers and sisters. He partook of the same to redeem us and to defeat the one who held us in slavery to the fear of death all our lives. He charged us to love one another as he loved us. That's a tall order, unless the love of Christ gets a hold of you, drives you. It's the driving force of the apostolic church, of the apostolate on the level of our time. It's the driving force. And it comes from a reflection that leads to a judgment that if one died for all, then all died. If the love of Christ didn't begin to totally control and impel and drive Paul until he came to that realization, then what happens with the church that denies that, rejects that, or doesn't believe that? Well, the love of Christ might be there, and they might sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, and they might signal how they love him, but the love of Christ is not controlling us. It hasn't arrested and held us. He loved us to the end. And he loves us still with a fire of love, the fiercest fire of all, of which many waters can never put out in Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7. He endured this baptism unto death, into death, until he said, it is finished. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant us that we be strengthened with power through the spirit of grace in our inner persons and that Christ Jesus may reside at home in our hearts through faith, that we may be able to grasp and comprehend with all the saints of all generations and ages what is the breadth and width the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses natural ways of knowing, so that we may be filled with all of your fullness. To you, Father, who always does beyond what we could ask or think, according to the benevolent power that even now is at work in us and in our behalf, to you be glory, Father in the new covenant community, to all generations of the ages of the ages. Amen.